is Sharon Israel, and this is Planet Poet Words in Space. My guest today is award-winning Canadian poet Lisa Richter, here to talk about and read from her highly acclaimed poetry book, Nautilus and Bone, about the poet Anna Margolin. Also joining us later in the show will be Planet Poets, poet at large, Pamela Manche Pierce. Hello, Lisa. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Sharon? I'm good. I'm good. good. Uh, I'm going to read your bio. Lisa Richter is a Canadian poet, writer, and educator. She is the author of two books of poetry, Closer to Where We Began, Tightrope Books 2017, and Nautilus and Bone, Frontenac House 2020, the winner of the National Jewish Book Award for Poetry, the Canadian Jewish Literary Award for Poetry, and the Robert Kretsch Award for Poetry. Her poems have been nominated for the Best of the Net and a National Magazine Award and appeared in numerous publications and anthologies, including the Literary Review of Canada, CV2, the Malahat Review, the New Quarterly, Rogue Agent, and Crab Creek Review. Lisa lives and writes in Toronto. So Lisa, this is an extraordinary book. And I was wondering if you want to open with a poem or tell us a tiny bit about the poem in the book before you start. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, it's just such a pleasure and an honor to be here in oh. the space with you. And your kind words really mean a lot to me. Um, so having said that, I'll start with Mother of Exiles, Ellis Island, from December 1906, uh, which works with or engages with um, the poet Anna Margolin's arrival in New York City at the turn of the last century. Mm -hmm. um, she was born and raised in what is now modern-day Belarus and arrived as a young woman in New York uh, in 1906. Um, the poem begins with an epigraph from Emma Lazarus's iconic poem, The New Colossus. Um, and the epigraph reads, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. Mother of Exiles. From the deck railing, she swims into focus. Feature by feature, oh, Madame Liberté, it is I, not you, the brazen giant of Ms. Lazarus. How long have you been waiting? Whose books do you clutch to your apple green breast? Gold frayed in mornings, unguarded alchemy. With a torch incendiary in your other fist, your hands are occupied. Dark lady, I'm tired, not poor, though I've nothing to show but gestures toward bankrupt agony. Water marble topography threatening to plague me until my death. How can I give you what I am too weak even to name? Mute goddess, does your arm throb from your ideals held aloft? From the gulf between what's lived and what's spoken? You cannot reach me and I cannot laurel your face in my hands much as I yearn to, not after a fortnight aboard the SS Finland, my insides tipped in a glass bottle, 
pummeled by tantruming storm, all rupture and enjambment, now coming to dock. Will you lift your golden lamp to guide the thousand peacock eyes festooning my taffeta train? Or will you keep your light turned inward as I fear you've learned? Disrobe, pale matriarch, abandon your tired post. Let us rescue each other from crone-like brambles. New world, ebb and swarm. That's Lisa Richter reading Mother of Exiles, Ellis Island, 5 December 1906 from her book, Nautilus and Bone. And this is a conversation between, or an address by Anna Margolin and you to the Statue of Liberty. There's the three it, of you in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it, actually four of us, because I think Eva Lazarus is part of the conversation yes, too. Yes, you, you quote, you take her words. Yes, there's four of you in there. That's you know, I actually never thought of it that way before, because I always just thought about the dialogue between me and Anna Margolin, or Rosa Lebensbaum when she was born. There's another. Like, there's another layer. It's an additional layer. Oh my yeah. goodness, that's beautiful. Would you talk a little bit about who is Anna Margolin and how you found her, Lisa? So the story goes back to a reading that I did in Toronto in I think 2015 or 2016, where I was reading the work of the late great poet, Adrian Rich. And I believe that's where I first encountered Anna Margolin because I think Rich had translated one of her poems. Mm -hmm. And it left quite an impression on me, not just because of the poetry itself, which felt so ahead of its time and so fresh and so striking and so powerful, but just the name of the poet because my great grandfather's original surname was Margolin, which he later changed to Lipitsky when he was immigrating from Russia in order to avoid anti-Semitism, because I guess Lipitsky sounds less serious <laughs> to Russian era. I don't know. But anyway, even though I later discovered that Anna Margolin was a pseudonym um, for her, well, which she adopted after actually trying on a, a number of different pseudonyms mm-hmm. during her, her career as a poet and as a journalist in, in New York in the early 20th century. Even though that was never her real name, it felt to me like a sign or, 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 a, or a serendipitous, synchronistic yes. moment of, of connection and, and conversation with this writer who embodied the kind of wild, uninhibited, transver- transgressive, um, rebellious, revolutionary feminism and and just defiance of gender norms that uh, just spoke to my soul. Um, and so I, I encountered Anna Margolin's work again when I was doing a writing retreat at Sage Hill, which is a... Um, a workshop um, program and an incredible writing retreat center based in Western Canada, Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And when I was asked by our wonderful mentor, George Elliott Clark, to write a two-page play in verse, Anna Margolin was the character <sighs> that jumped to mind. And that's so the it, beginning. That was the beginning. And it's so the, the sonnet sequence that's in the, the collection actually began as a two as, as a play 
between Anna Margolin and her third and eventual husband or or common-law spouse, Ruben Island. And so that's how that sonnet sequence actually began as a play. Fascinating evolution of what you're doing. It is so many layers upon layers, the fact that it's a common practice for Jewish people to change their names sometimes, <laughs> and poets to change, and people who are poets to change their names to something that's more poetic, let's say, or, or different. Mm-hmm. But um, would you read the poem... Um, Rosa into Anna, which is about changing her name to Anna Margolin. Sure. Rosa to Anna. I did not hate my name. Only folk myself in prison in roses. In the violence of thorns, O Rosa, thou art sicker than Blake's invisible worm. No howling storm to fly in the night. Only a howling in the heart's cold grotto. A crawling of the warmed apple, the sugar plum overture to a funeral march. Oh, how I choked on my mother's perfume. Her fears, awful musk, too dense for even the heaviest of florals to mask. And a sweet palindrome, the Latin form of the Hebrew chana. Anna, a name, to bathe in, a name that does not give me whiplash each time I hear it. Anna, elemental in its frequency. Anna, everywhere in this babble labyrinth of cities shimmering with derelict oil and muffled lust. Anna warms your hands in hers by an iron hearth. Anna rocks you to milk-drunk sleep. Anna flavor of kosher salt, liverwurst, pickles, beer, chicken schmaltz. Anna, the wind snap of calico shirtwaists and aprons on clotheslines from fire escapes and tenement windows, shameless and fluttering. Anna, the dirt packed beneath the nails of the huntress. Anna, ochre roots tendrilled deep into Bronx asphalt. Anna, with each reach and twist, tunneling deeper. Anna, into the belly of this new world, my words are wilding. That's Lisa Richter reading Rosa into Anna. What a paean to Anna. And the the anaphora, which is another form of Anna that you you start mm. you you it's an incantation of Anna mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you you imbibe it with such imagistic richness which I'm sure our our listeners uh, will understand that that's not an easy thing to do and the imagery is so intense and intricate but I find very emotionally accessible so thank you for that, Lisa. Thank you. I, Anna is a Yiddish poet, which mm-hmm. sort of marginalizes, we talked about marginalization of, of, a, of a woman, of a poet, and then of a Yiddish poet. There are more layers and, and nesting of the, the layers of alienation, perhaps. But you are a non-Yiddish speaker. How do you relate to her Yiddishness? Did she write in Yiddish? So that's a great question. Anna Margolin wrote in Yiddish for 
And it was a very specifically aesthetic and political choice on her behalf to do that. She was a Russian speaker. She spoke in many other languages, Hebrew and English, and probably German, but Yiddish was the language that she chose to write in. And it was the language of the Jewish diaspora. It was the language of conversation. It was the language of oral traditions passed down from generation to generations of women in Russia and in the Ashkenazi Jewish traditions. And for me, in my case, as you mentioned, I am not a Yiddish speaker, though it was actually my late father's first language. And as a child, I never learned Yiddish in school. I was We never spoke it at home. The only exposure that I had to it was occasionally hearing it spoken by my grandparents when we used to visit them in Montreal or in the choir that I sang in in elementary school. But I felt like it was kind of denied to me yes. because it kind of represented the past and it kind of represented a past that new generations and immigrant generations wanted to move forward from and not hold on to. And I felt in some ways that it was a legacy that was always there for me, but denied to me in mm -hmm. a particular mm -hmm. way. And so when I encountered the English translation of Anna Margolin's one and only books that she ever published, I was, I was mesmerized by it. And it felt like a doorway for me. It felt like yes. a portal, not only into the past, into this life of a poet who lived more than 100 years ago, but into my own personal past and into my own ancestry mm -hmm. to a life that had been possible, but was never available to me. And so it was kind of like this braiding, this entwining of our two lives and destinies, even though they never actually touched, it felt like this connection or this, this wonderful dialogue that I was invited to partake. You were invited, yes. I feel that way too. You accepted the invitation. And you also embraced the Lower East Side or well, your imagery of the Lower East Side mm -hmm. uh, was so clear and you do write with a lot of passion. So thank you. And I want to reintroduce my guest, award-winning Canadian poet, Lisa Richter, here to discuss Nautilus and Bone for which he won the National Jewish Book Award for Poetry. I just want to read a, a little bit of that, of the comments of the jurors, I guess, who they gave you the award for the National Book of Poetry. In Nautilus and Bone, Lisa Richter races around the life and work of Yiddish language poet Anna Mongolin until her words are wilding. That's the last, that's the last line of the, of the poem. Um, the poetry supersedes the mere bio, uh, biographical and showcases the triumph of the genre. In many forms, it will be discussing. Um, language flaunts itself across history with epigraph ranging from Lorca to Lizzo. The collection memorizes Margolin's legacy across time. Richter's exhilarating achievement doesn't merely bring Margolin to life. It dares the reader to live as fully as Margolin. And that's what you're bringing to us today, Lisa. So I really, really appreciate that. And would you now read another poem that is one that poet speaks to poet? 
So I'll read this one. Yeah. So the primeval murderous talks back to them, Paul. Yes. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yes, yes. Thank you. So this poem was written in response to Anna Margolin's poem, Primeval Murderous Night, in which the speaker of my poem directly addresses hers. And it was written in the form of the golden shovel, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. But for those who aren't, it was developed by the poet Terence Hayes as an homage to Gwendolyn Brooks and takes a line from the original poem and uses each one of those words as the end word in the new poem's lines itself. So in mine, I start with two epigraphs, one from the anarchist Emma Goldman, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. <laughs> and the second, from Lizzo, I just <laughs> took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that bitch. And that's from her song, Truth Hurts. The primeval murderess talks back to the poet. Not a dram of blood of these hands spilled. To you, I read primeval from the Latin prima venus, early in life, youthful. Would a murderess weave her hair into a coronet of foxglove, carouse away the night in the city's armored paunch until her shoes crumble, grope in the dark for her sister's hands? I've been known to worship a mother I wasn't born to, but would come to love as my own, not out of desire to commune with Alpine blossom or timber wolf, but the necessity of loosening the slipknot pressing my throat. Lady, I don't need your help. The cracked pedestal where in your earnest rage you've mounted me. Spare me your drink of tears, your bread of shame. Do not beg me to seduce, devour, bewitch, enmesh. I've no time for such meshuggas. If you want him, no more greed-crazed gulps from promised streams. Why ensnare when you can entrance? Why pummel and thrash? Invite him to meet you in the ring, only your vanquished pride to swallow. If at midnight you rise, glaze with a somnambulist's grace, Take him to my secluded forest, to the star-drowned beach, where the ocean's a hound, baying to storied gods, restless as thieves. Surround him, waltz him in circles, into the unfurling sea, minding stones that threaten to ribbon your feet. Sirens, whose swan songs will singe you to death. Mm. That's the primeval murderess talks back to the poet. And what was the name of Anna's poem? Anna's poem was called Primeval Murderous Night. <laughs> yeah. So you're the talking title. to Anna and the murderess right. is talking to you and Anna. We can go on and on. I love yeah, loosening, yeah. The, loosening the, 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 the knot at the neck. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me how this poem relates to the rest of the book? Relates to your mm -hmm. feelings about Anna mm -hmm. and how you felt when you wrote this? I remember when I wrote this poem, 
how I wanted to loosen, so to speak, or chip away at any kind of iconic or I'm trying to think of the right word, um, solidified image of femininity of, <laughs> of this kind of iconic plastic femininity that Margolin references mm-hmm. and demystify and devilify uh, the murderous character yes. who I um, saw as being fundamentally misunderstood, misinterpreted, and rewrite, remythologize, reclaim, recreate the story that Margolin tells. So there are two actual phrases in italics in the poem, your drink of tears and your bread of shame, that come from Margolin's poem, Primeval Murderous Night. And so what I wanted to do with those phrases, which may sound a little bit cliche to modern ear, is to subvert them and to challenge myself, to challenge the speaker in Margolin's poem to engage with each other in kind of this dance or this kind of, um, yeah, this kind of dance with each other. And and there is a lot of dancing in the book. There is a lot of dancing in the epigraphs of this poem Mm -hmm. with the Lizzo quote, with the Emma Goldman quote. And there's a famous fairy tale I believe it's called um, the oh, what's it called? The Twelve Sisters. Do you know that one where the Twelve Sisters go off at night and yes. they dance all night, and then yes. their slippers are worn in the morning, and uh, no one knows why. And, and they turn into been, swans. Correct. They turn into swans. I believe it's a Hans Christian Andersen fairy That's tale, so. though it could be mistaken. But that was also uh, another intertextual uh, level or layer mm-hmm. that that I wrote into and how it relates to the rest of the collection, I think is in the physicality and Mm -hmm. the challenge that the speaker lays down in a way, not just for the reader, but for Anna Margolin herself as a figure that I'm trying not to idolize or idealize or, or, or fetishize in any Mm -hmm. way. Um, So it just, being honest, being raw, being unflinching, being real. Those are things that are important to me as a poet and Thank you. That's to me great. as a reader. Yeah. I, I'm still I'm still have in my mind too the Statue of Liberty being addressed in such a way. Right. Yeah. How unusual that is. You know, well, she's not the only sculpture in the book that I am addressing either. Oh, right. You talk about uh, Rodin sculpture, Danaïde that I remember I first saw in Paris when I was in my early 20s um, at the Rodin Museum. And I was absolutely mesmerized by this, the sensuality of Rodin's lines and marble that were so organic and so, and so, so, so animated and so flesh-like. And so that became a a kind of pivotal point for me um, to write about um, sort of weaving my own experience into Margolin's, who, who, I mean, she was in Paris for a short time as well. Um, and so that became another opportunity to engage with myth. You're listening to Planet Poet Words in Space. I'm Sharon Israel here with my guest Canadian poet, Lisa Richter. And now it's time for Pamela Marche Pierce, our 
poet at large. Pamela is a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. She also makes visual art and three collages from her series Skin Hunger, created in response to the pandemic, have just been published in Paris Lit Up magazine in Paris, France. Hi, Pamela. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Lisa. It's, it's wonderful to be here today in, in every way. Wonderful to be here. And uh, I have to thank you, Lisa, not only for your gorgeous poetry, which I'm, I'm just in it with you. And I, and I am, you, you've got me, you've got me in there with you. And also to thank you for um, synchronicity, which I'm feeling in a variety of ways. And it really is a great way to lead me into what I'm going to be talking about today. So I, I love it when that happens. As poet at large on planet Poet Wars in Space, and here I am again, I have been exploring the connection between poetry and other art forms for a series I call cross-pollination. Those of you who listened to the show the last time know that I talked about the debate over the value of poetry versus painting. This was first written about that we know of by the ancient Greek lyric poet Simonithes, who said, poetry is a speaking picture, painting a silent poetry. And as often happened in history, a Roman picked up where a Greek had gone before and really paved the way and the Roman lyric poet Horace picked up on that phrase and wrote on pictura poesis, as is painting, so is poetry. This put him on the map, so to speak, and made him famous. There's been spurring arguments that are still alive and going strong. And if you look this up, I was amazed when I worked on this show that there are volumes, people are still writing about this and they're using that phrase. And I always oh, yeah. imagine, it's true. And I always imagine seeing a bunch of poets and artists drinking well into the night and still trying to thrash this out. And it's like a, you know, a, a, a battle that they're having. At the end of that segment, I shared my fantasy that poetry and painting moved in together and had a baby. And they named that baby Ecrasis. <laughs> I ended my segment promising to take a look at acrostic poetry for a future show. The future is now. Ecrasis <laughs> in Greek means to describe. And why does that matter today? Why does that matter now? Because this is a show about poetry and ecrasis or describing is an important element in every poet's toolbox. There are many definitions of ekrasis, and there are just as many uh, ways of, of, of saying that word. So they'll be going some back and forth with this. One of the definitions is a vivid description of a scene, or more commonly, a work of art that is a literary device. And then I have to say to myself, but who would want to spend their time describing another art form, an art form other than their own poets? Because all artists are self-starters and poets very, very much so. We're constantly trolling for material to get our motors started. We 
We use prompts and exercises and all sorts of things to take with us when we sit out at our desks and we're not sure where to begin or how to start. We read us, we read the obituaries and racing forms. We reminisce about our third grade teacher's blue necklace. We look at family photos or wonder what our cats are thinking because that may lead us somewhere. Certain poets, no names mentioned here, contemplating a spoon could put them to work instantly. It's all material. It all leads us to something. And it will all wind up inspiring our world. Focusing on the art of others, painting, sculpture, movies, music, TV, to create poetry does something else. It helps us interact with those other artists who can inspire us, our kindred spirits in our solitary work. And there's both comfort and deep connection in that. It's a form of cross-pollination between genres, those Greeks. I sometimes think they invented everything that interests me. And of course, if Krasnick poetry began with them over 2000 years ago, no surprise. When epic poets were using ekphrasis to aid audiences in visualizing legendary battles, these poets created inargias or vivid word paintings, like the Iliad, for example, which carries a very detailed description of Achilles' shield. Homer, the blind poet and its author, never saw the actual shield, so he made it up in his imagination notionally, as were most of the scenes and objects described in epic poetry. These poets tried and often succeeded in turning the verbal into the visual. Ephrastic poetry in broad terms is when a poet has a literary response to something other than a literary work. But there are actually four types. Ephrastic poetry about a work of art actual ekphrasis, writing about an artwork that exists. Notional ekphrasis, writing about an imagined work of art. And accessible, actual ekphrasis, writing about a work that once existed and is now lost, destroyed, or far away. Mm. Over thousands of years, poets like us have been finding different ways of interacting with art, visual, and every other kind too, influencing us, connecting us, and helping us appreciate and understand the work of other artists, leading us over and over to fascinating discoveries and new ways of art. But we're not just describing, and our readers enjoy our emotional responses are fresh takes and personal points of view. Like Lisa, in probably the most famous acrostic poet ever written, John Keats in, in Ode to a Grecian Urn, directly addresses the figures on this artifact. Many, many, many poets have worked with visual art. And I found it very interesting as I looked into this subject that the most popular visual artist for this type of work is Peter Brogel, the 16th century Dutch Renaissance painter, known for his plain 
truth-telling work that may be the reason it inspired so many it inspired so many poets like William Carlos Williams, W.H. Auden, and John Berryman, to name a very few. So on and on, we find new sources. Lisa brought put right in my lap today. Really fantastic, Dr. Liberty! I can't believe that. I loved it. I loved what you did with it. Uh, Lisa. So now we just are on our way to finding all sorts of new sources. I know I wrote uh, one of my favorite poems that is in, and it's anthologized is my TV family uh, about watching a particular watching TV. And I put that into my work. So what we know is that we're all together making art, helping other artists and inspiring one another on a daily or a monthly basis. Thank you, Sharon. For Thank this you. You know, oh, it's so amazing. it's so fascinating to be poet at large and bring my cross pollination to the airwaves once again. And Man. thank you, Lisa. Thank you, thank you for inspiring me after hearing your gorgeous work today and handing me the Statue of Liberty. As <laughs> that was so it doesn't get better than that. So thank you both. Thank you. That was really so informative and great. Lisa's work is very organically. Ephrastic. It's exactly. like you're searching for something to no, no, it to feels respond very, very to. It's there. It's it's in the mix. Right. It's in that. It's in that right. world that you've created. Right. It's really in her toolkit. Thank yeah. you, Pamela. I'm just so honored by that. Fun. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really honored. Thanks so much, my, Pamela. My pleasure. And now I'm just going to be a listener. Pamela Moshe Pierce, poet at large. Thank you. I've done, I have all well, my, my brain is like exploding now more than it was before. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> I was taking notes during that talk, Pamela. So That's I'll wonderful. I appreciate go that. Back Lisa. To them later. Yes. Let, let's see what you do with it. We'll have to see. <laughs> all right. right. You never all know. Right. <laughs> all right. I'm going to listen. Bye bye. Hi, Pamela. I'm back with Lisa Richter, Canadian poet of Nautilus and Bone. What poem would you like to read now? We have one before the end poem. And you've written many forms okay. in this book. Um, I have. And they're all, again, organically compatible with one another. And they all uh, further the intensity of the book and inform the, the meaning, if you want to say, of what you're, of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I was, I, well, there were two that I was considering, so maybe I'll get your feedback on this, Sharon. Okay. I was either thinking of reading the last section of Jewess or reading one of the sonnets. Why don't you read one of the sections of Jewess? The passion involved in that, I, in the search for identity and clarification of identity and demythologizing identity, I think is important. Maybe I'll actually just read the first section of Jewess. How does that sound? Sounds fine. Okay. One. Don't call me Jewess. Call me hellfire and fish hooks. The moon as it violets the earth in mollusk silver shadow papered with yellow envelopes and wheat. Call me pale skins stretched into backlit sails. Call me opium, milk rose, a comet saliva trail spittling the blue globe. Call me abacus. Call me the bespoke noose you wind in loops around your fingers. 
the tangerine light that shimmies through curtains as evening sidles in steady advance towards you, the burnished apple's high scarlet gloss, a windpipe's hollow moan. Call me newsreel, hollyhock, sundial, astrolab, the peacock's shimmering cyanide blues and gangrene greens, the rusted latch from the outhouse door that claws open and warms to your calloused clasp, an iodine sunset swelling across a wound. Ah, that's Lisa Richter reading a section from her, her um, multi-sectioned Jewess. You gather the identity that can be shared by you and Anna and all of us. So I find it very inclusive. What you're doing is very inclusive. So I don't know. I'm well, just that means so much to me. That really does, especially because inclusivity is something that's really important to me as a person and as an artist, as a writer. When I wrote this poem originally, it wasn't in any one particular person's voice. I wasn't writing specifically um, in the persona of Anna Margolin yet. At this mm -hmm. stage, it came out as kind of a composite of both myself and a speaker who may have, been may have existed another time. Um, but the poem was really driven by the nouns in it. It was really driven and, and, and instigated, initiated, I think, by the um, form of the list poem with the anaphora, the repetition of call me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and when I word, started doing, sorry, go on. No, the, the word Jewess. Um, yeah. Somebody wrote an Italian history that, and he mentioned, the, he talked about a Jewess and it, I found it very, as a, as a Jewish person, I found it, I trembled with something I didn't like. Now, of yeah. course, in that time, Jewish women were referred to as Jewesses, but That's there's right. something very other about that. Much in the same way that that ending, that suffix that ESS was applied to women of other minority identities mm -hmm. um, and the way that that word both limited and diminished and reduced yes. um, women into others, into this uh, sort of ob objectified kind of identity into yes. that presence. And so in Western art, as I discovered in um, the 19th century and earlier, uh, Jewish women were perceived in that particular way as this kind of like dark, mysterious, yet also possibly evil, yet possibly yes. also kind yeah. of exotic. productive, exotic, right. And so that's kind of the other impetus, right, exactly. So kind of to reclaim the word as mm -hmm. much as to negate it. So okay, for me, there's a tension between that. There's this tension between wanting to embrace the identity that I was kind of, well, that I, you could say that I was born with or that was assigned to me mm -hmm. arbitrarily and simultaneously rejecting it, mm -hmm. personalizing it, challenging it. Um, when I think about subject matter in a poem, I really write about something. I'm more interested in writing into something. And when you think about writing into something, I think about like putting your hands in the earth and overturning it and seeing what you come up with as opposed to encircling it or writing around a subject. I really want to write into one. And so that's what this poem felt like. Mm, I like that. I like that. It's sort of getting your hands at one with the earth too, if, yeah. if I may. <laughs> yeah. 
I want to uh, ask you, if people are interested in finding your book, where should they go for that? The best place would probably be the Frontenac House website for um, the publisher who published mm-hmm. this collection um, or uh, any independent bookseller uh, would probably be able to order it. Um, it's a little bit more difficult or it might take a little bit longer in, in the States than in Canada, in Canada, but the publisher's website, Frontenac House, I believe it's .com, would probably be the easiest way to do that. Yeah, and Frontenac, like the Frontenac Hotel in Quebec. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lisa, would you end with the final poem in the collection? Yes. And um, Go ahead, sorry. This has so much in it. We, we discuss, describe Anna's life, which was very tumultuous and filled mm-hmm. with drama and husbands and oh, yeah. poetry and, and politics. Could you just say a word or two about the poem before you begin it? Yeah. Um, so after Anna Margolin published her one and only collection of poetry, which was simply titled Poems in 1929, um, she faded a little bit into obscurity. She published a few poems in literary magazines after that, but not very much. Mm-hmm. And prior to the publication of her own book, she had actually edited a volume of Yiddish language poetry in the early 20s. Um, and she felt very rejected by the literary establishment in New York after having done all that work with them um, and getting very little recognition um, for the actual poetry that she published herself. Although ironically in Warsaw, which was another hub of Jewish literary culture at the time, she did receive recognition. Mm-hmm. So she felt very ignored and, and misunderstood and rejected and eventually retreated almost into complete silence. Oh, dear. You know, it is a really kind of tragic story in a, in a way. You know, I wish I could have had a happy ending to the book, but I didn't want mm-hmm. to do that. I thought that, you know, if I had ended the book on the love affair that she had with Ruben Iceland that ended in like their 20-year relationship, it would have been a little bit too Disney, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want the happily ever after ending. Um, so this really, I think, speaks to her ambivalence and and the way that she became something of a recluse. So maybe I'll just read the first section. Does that work for you, Sharon? Yeah, you can read, right. You can, we have a few minutes, so you can read it. Okay, great. Uh, so this poem is entitled Afterward, The Jewess plots her escape route. One, for years I communed with gods and ghosts, elbow to elbow at the banquet table, blessing the feasts of alternating seasons. So much bounty, we could hear the sculpted legs groaning. In those days, the poems would not relent. Swell after vertiginous swell, my open wounds wild stung with salt. An ice blue pain I came to savor. Across the Atlantic, lustrous men hunched over each other's calfskin volumes who couldn't place my nom de plume, rode their praise for the volume I'd labored to birth. The local birds I'd flock to, Shivers, whose own work, these bloody knuckled hands helped thrust into light, left me freezing amongst empty milk bottles. My name thinner than gauze, a will-o'-the-wisp with breasts and hard feelings. Still, I coaxed spring's entrance with 
hand flutes and the yelps of wounded foxes. Hush, all you diabolical critics, each vying for the deepest cut. Beneath the quilted silence, a conch shell's whale song rescinds decrees for my undoing. I look in the mirror, cough up my snarling double. She sticks to the glass and demands compensation. Two. Letter by letter, the poems taper off. I turn to my rose bushes and swallow pure sky, snuggle lungfuls of nightshade and wormwood. The pearls that were my nails fill with nectar and sheep's blood. A certain Mr. Samuel Lipitsky of Montreal asks me to sign a book for his great-granddaughter who won't be born for decades. I collapse on a bed of prayers and petitions. Let the imprints of my curses and apocryphal curves fill with lamplight and snow. I abandon the shoes I've hobbled in across fissured continents, begging for truth in six dialects of a foreign language. Nothing but magpies and vultures, no one but scarecrows and derelicts to taste an anguish so exquisite it shatters sternum and clavicle. Oh, bone fragments growing little wings take flight. Mm. And there's just one more section, if I may. <laughs> yes. Three. Littlest Matryoshka doll, wooden nub of a girl with pancake eyes frozen in wonder. Your absence in my core weighs more than all your sisters combined. Perhaps it is true. I have no regard for the sanctity of mild discomfort. My hands smell of almonds with hints of disappointment. I pen my epitaph, turtle doves pecking at my knees. Space is an illusion shared by those of us always digging ourselves out of early graves. The dance shall commence at the stroke of eternity. I collect the dried tissue paper wings of my most beloved adversaries, clasp them flat to my chest. Who would I be without their familiar sting? The squalid reminder of worlds that cast me from their foul casts. When I write, she squandered her life on nothing, on rubbish. A certain lightness propels me. Mirage oasis cool water gushing over desert-chopped lips. I'm done rooting in the rubble of bombarded castles. Finally, free to snub the ballrooms of normalcy and civic engagement. As my mother used to say, don't send a dog to the butcher shop. You can't empty the ocean with a spoon. That's wonderful. That's Lisa Richter reading her poem, the end poem from her volume, Nautilus and Bone. Afterward, the Jewish, Jewess plots her escape route. And I, I love this line, the dance shall commence at the stroke of eternity. And I think that's a beautiful line for the whole poem. And I thank you so much, Lisa Richter, for joining us today with your beautiful work. It was such a delight, such a pleasure. Aww. And thank you, Pamela Moshe Pierce, for your 
your wonderful contribution. Thank you so much. And thank you all so much for listening. And thank you, Sharon, for having me. It was a pleasure. Just a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you.